GP Insights, a health cert podcast. Practical advice for busy GPs on how to treat with confidence and grow their practice. So today, it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Helena Rosengren. Um, many of our listeners will know that name. Um, very famous, indeed, uh, long-established colleague in skin cancer medicine in primary care in Australia. Um, delighted that Helen is with us today. Helen, just over to you, just if you don't mind, just introduce yourself uh, to those listeners who, who don't know who you are, haven't come across you, and tell us a little bit about your story before we dive into the the guts of the conversation today, please. Thanks, thanks, David. Um, yes, so I'm Helena Rosengren. I was trained as a GP, and uh, at the turn of the century, I guess I started to really not enjoy being in general practice anymore. And one day, I got a letter from Paul Elmsley, would have been in 2002, um, saying they were opening a new skin cancer clinic actually in Townsville. And that led me into a lot of training and upskilling. And eventually, I ended up opening my own clinic in 2009 and um, built that. Um, had uh, five colleagues working alongside me. And um, it's been an amazing journey. Um, incredible to be able to train and teach and um, share the skill set that we learn regarding surgery and safe practice in skin cancer medicine. And um, also, it's been an incredible journey into research work. You you are presenting at the forthcoming Skin Cancer Conference um, in the middle of the year. We look forward to that very, very much. And it's the important topic of... Um, Antibiotic prophylaxis and, and infection. Um, now, you you live and work in a beautiful part of the world, uh, Townsville. Um, it, it does seem that the further north one goes in the tropics, the more post-operative surgical site infection is, is a problem. Um, is is that a is that a reasonable observation? And and what, what do you and your colleagues see up there in terms of surgical site infections and rates of infections and and, and and if it's true why is that it definitely is true there have been a lot of studies done worldwide and generally the infection rate for dermatologic surgery is about one to three percent across the world um, yeah. professor claire heel who's in mackay she's done several studies in mackay with a group of gps and yeah. the general infection rate there is 8.5%, so massively yeah. higher. This is mainly elliptical excisions. Um, all we can assume is it has to do with the humidity and the heat, um, and that puts us at greater risk of infection. So we've done some audits within our own clinic. Our own baseline probably sits at about 3%. But yeah. as is the case worldwide, there are certain body sites that are linked with much higher infection rates. So right. ear, nose, below knee, um, axilla yep. and groin. Yep. Um, but in, in many parts of the world, the infection rate wouldn't get much above 5 or 6% even at those sites. Yeah. But up here, our infection rates are actually up at about 15 16% and wow. 30% below knee, which is wow. absolutely shocking. But the, I mean, the good thing about that is that it means 
we are at a very good site to do some studies on this and in interventions that might make a difference and to yeah. look at that because we don't need to recruit quite as many patients when you've got <laughs> such infect, high infection rates. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's been good. We have um, really added to the literature in a very meaningful way. And 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 the, the cause of all of this, I, I, I mean, I think is, is fascinating. And you know the literature very much better than I do. I, I mean, I guess one of the questions is, is it simply heat and humidity or, or how much of it, if any, is different lifestyle? And by that, I'm thinking the coast and water and fishing and, and, and whatever. Has, has Claire or, or others done further explorations to look at differences by age and gender and occupation and leisure activities and so on? Or is that, is that work that, that, that is worth doing, do you think? There is a lot more work to be done. And, and the question you pose is a really good one, David, something we need to answer. Why, why is it so much higher up here? I would say, though, with um, stinger season on at the moment yeah. and for six months of the year, it's, it's possibly not water-related. <laughs> right. We do have a lot of people going out fishing, of, of course. Um, my own postulation is that it is more to do with heat and humidity. Right. But some right. studies worldwide have shown that infection rates are higher in men, a little bit higher in men than in women, um, yeah. and particularly for high-risk areas with a lot of pilospatious units like the nose and the ear. Uh, right. So, And we showed that too. We showed that very clearly, much higher infection rates in men. So yeah. something to do with bacteria sitting in, in you know, luscious, <laughs> expanded yeah. pilosebaceous units, which, of course, in women post-menopause reduce in size. Right. Yeah. So, so you, you've done some, some great studies on, on interventions and the role of antibiotic prophylaxis. What, what's your take-home message for skin cancer GPs in terms of, of of a pragmatic approach to um, antibiotic prophylaxis for surgical site infection? All right. Well, I would first of all say, even to GPs up here in Townsville, generally our infection rates are low for dermatologic surgery, and we should not be giving antibiotic prophylaxis willy-nilly to everyone. So a, a recent... Um, investigation into antibiotic use that was published in 2020 showed that in Australia, we actually have highest, just about highest antibiotic prescribing in the world. It's about 23 per thousand patients, which is um, more than double, save Sweden, up by 50% compared with um, UK and, and really the highest across the world, more or less. So, I mean, that's food for thought. So I think maybe we tend to reach for that prescription pad a little bit quickly with a lot of patients. And, of course, there's time pressures and patient pressures. So, so far as antibiotic prophylaxis goes, I would say generally don't do it. You only ever want to consider something if it has been proven to be effective. If you're dealing with a high-risk patient, high-risk site, and doing high-risk surgery. So um, we already talked about the high-risk sites, but the um, things about the patient that may increase their risk of infection is diabetes, not just diabetes, but diabetes with poor glycemic control. 
uh, all being immunocompromised. Some studies show that um, smoking may be a factor. Others show it, it isn't. Um, right. And also, interestingly, excising keratinocyte cancer rather than the benign lesion increases infection rate. Another very good study. We don't know why that is. So that, that's not something else that needs oh, researching maybe in time. But okay. it's shown repeatedly in study after study. Yeah. Um, and then doing more yep. complex surgery. So, so longer wounds, surgery that takes longer. So being inexperienced actually increases infection rate. Yeah. Hemorrhage following the excision will increase ex uh, infection rate also. So being absolutely meticulous with um, diathermy or tying off and um, just ensuring that there is no bleeding in that wound is really, really helpful. And then flaps yeah. and grafts, big increase yeah. in infection rate. So knowing who your patients are and working yeah. out what their risks are. We should never consider antibiotic prophylaxis if risks are below 5%, which is, you know, 95, at least, well, it's yeah. probably 97, 98% of all the surgery that we do. So the highest risk sites are below knee, yeah. ear, and nose. Now, yep. there have only been yep. four randomized controlled trials done on those sites worldwide to date. Mm. Three of them comes from far north Queensland, one from Mackay, and the other two are actually yep. from our clinic up in Townsville. So in a nutshell, <laughs> what this shows is that it probably is worthwhile giving antibiotic prophylaxis for elliptical excisions uh, below knee, elliptical excisions yep. below knee. Um, yep. But where we are, so the antibiotic prophylaxis we're talking about here is two grams of cephalexin. 30 to 60 minutes prior to surgery. Right. Um, so that was the study that was done in Mackay. And actually, it was underpowered. Um, but I, I think when you look at the data, you can see that that would definitely have, had they just had two or three more patients, it would have reached statistical significance. And I myself will give antibiotic prophylaxis below need for elliptical excisions. So we, we ran the study again at the request of Claire Hill because it just missed out on statistical uh, significance. But we did it on more complex closures because we get a lot of referrals. Yeah. So we did it for flap and graft closures. And I can tell yeah. you, two grams of cephalexin makes no difference. You know, yeah. it went from 30.5% infection rate to 25.5%. So it's, yeah. that's not enough. So we don't know yet what is enough to prevent infection below knee. So that's, that's below me, and our um, clinic is now um, gathering up the data and going into another trial on this that we hope might, might be the answer. We will see. Maybe not. But we need to keep on researching it. What we shouldn't do is just willy-nilly giving antibiotics if it's been shown not to help or even if the studies haven't been done because yeah. antibiotic prescribing leads to antibiotic resistance worldwide and that's a massive problem massive mm -hmm. cost to the health industry mm -hmm. and uh and to the patients okay so just going back to the other the other study that we did was nose and ear and again we did complex closures and because um somehow by chance more men had been randomized into the intervention and the control group we had to look at those figures separately we had to look at men and women separately. In women, 
we, our infection rate was only 4%. Now, you really shouldn't consider antibiotic prophylaxis if it's less than 5%. Yeah. Because you're just giving antibiotics to 19 people who are definitely not going to get any benefit from it because they're not going to get infection anyway. You know, in our, in that case, four yeah. percent infection rate. So, but we anyway found statistically it made no difference to give antibiotic prophylaxis in women. But in the men, it went from a massive 15.9 percent in the controls down to infection rate, you know, in our particular study group, only zero, zero, no, no infections at all. So yeah. massive difference. So from all of that, what I personally do now is give antibiotic prophylaxis mm-hmm. only when we're doing elliptical excisions below me or where I'm doing a flap or a glass closure in a man on the nose or the ear. Um, yeah. Of course, there's times you give antibiotic prophylaxis to prevent um, infectious endocarditis or large joint prosthesis sure. infection, which is a little bit different again. Yeah. But the, yeah. what you do need to do is give those antibiotics before incising the skin. So ideally yeah. at 30 minutes before incising the skin. So you've actually got antibiotic in the tissue at the time of incision. Because as soon as we cut into the skin, um, we have got a coagulum starting to form in the wound. And actually, by three hours after surgery, it is very hard for, for antibiotics to penetrate that coagulum and make a difference. Mm. And, and Helena, you, um, when, when you started out, of course, the, the, the whole field of skin cancer in primary care was very much in its infancy. Um, you've seen enormous changes. Tell us a little bit what you've seen change, particularly perhaps around the skills that GPs have developed. And they, I mean, you have a, a wonderful group of colleagues in your clinic at the moment. As you said, I've had the pleasure of meeting them not too long ago, and, and it really is a wonderful facility and a wonderful group. And we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But it's been an interesting journey, hasn't it? As um, skin cancer in primary care has matured and you you've been a a, a big part of that not least in your role in in the skin cancer college of australia just just reflect on some aspects of that for us if you would yeah that's definitely true david it was we well we found that there was a lot of resistance to a skin cancer clinic being established in council from uh, both from our gp colleagues and from dermatologists locally um, and in those very early years, it was really pioneering work and a and, um, matter of just sticking to it, doing your best, getting as much education as you could and proving that this could be a standalone specialty to really bring excellence to the Australian public in this space. It's so important. There's so many, uh, uh, so much death and morbidity from skin cancer, from skin cancer. So it's been an extremely important journey. And I have seen as the years have unfolded that we um, have initially gained grudging respect, number of referrals. Mm -hmm. And then as, you know, as going into the last decade, really it's been an increasing expectation from patients and from doctors, we get a lot of referrals, a lot of phone calls about how to assist various patients' next steps when we've got a histology report 
support. Um, and yeah. we are now working very closely also with our colleagues in the hospital system um, who, yeah. who are referring back to us for ongoing skin checks. So it's been really an incredible journey over a 20-year period in this space. Yeah, I agree. You, you, you said there that there was resistance from GP colleagues initially in Townsville. What, what form did that take? I mean, we all know the resistance from the, the dermatologists um, at the time, and, and indeed it still persists. But yeah. GPs, have you seen, I mean, what was, what was the resistance and has that changed in yeah. Townsville? There was there was this misconcept, really, that doctors who chose to go into skin cancer medicine at the time um, were just creaming the benefits of Medicare. Yeah. We're just after yeah. making making a quick buck, and uh, the reflection that we got was that, particularly from dermatologists and and, and other specialties, that we wouldn't look after those patients properly. You know, once they yeah. developed an infection or a complication, they were palmed off into the hospital system. So, yeah, a lot of misunderstanding, really. And and a number of us um, have really pioneered and changed this perspective from our colleagues over the last yeah. two decades. And and so it, would it be fair to say now that, that in your experience, both in Townsville and elsewhere, that, that more GPs see those of us that only do skin cancer as, as colleagues as opposed to um, competition? Yeah, I mean, definitely in Townsville, we've been very much embraced by our colleagues. Um, we get a lot of referrals and questions, as I've said. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah. there is a lot of expertise within general practice in skin cancer medicine. Yeah. Much more so probably in our own generation and old yeah. GPs who really have yeah. been procedural over many years. Yeah. And, of course, many of them can very adequately deal with skin cancer. Yeah. But for our younger colleagues, we don't seem to be teaching the skills as, as well, or, or maybe it's um, just a whole, whole change in the culture from, you know, see one, do one, teach one, to see yeah. a lot and really don't do yeah. too much and, you know, or you might get sued. <laughs> so we, we're finding our younger medical colleagues are not as prepared to take things on. And and maybe that's a very good thing for patients too, that, that mm -hmm. people are holding back and getting training instead. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I, I and this this next comment of mine is not not meant to be a criticism as such as much as an observation, but I, I do think the RACGP has to reflect on its own curriculum and whether it's adequate for RACGP registrars that are going through the training program at the moment because I see quite a few of them at the courses that I teach myself and um, they, they are not well prepared. I don't see much evidence that the current cohort of registrars are being well trained in skin cancer and I think that's a problem in Australia. Do, do, do you think I'm? Do you think that's a fair comment? It's absolutely what I feel. I'm seeing myself too. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. surgical skills are not what they were. It's not being taught to the same level. Some of that will be reduced hours that um, yeah. younger doctors are now working. Uh, it's uh, uh, yeah. Maybe there's some disadvantages to um, progress. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I the, the last two weekends I've been teaching in uh, Melbourne and then Brisbane, and as I do at the start of it, and this is a, a course that is designed for, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a foundation introductory course, so it is the beginner's course, but but everybody is a registered doctor and most of them are GPs and there's always a handful of registrars. But the large majority of, of uh, attendees indicate at the start of the day that they are not confident to do a punch biopsy. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's actually it's incredible. unbelievable, particularly yeah. given that we have the highest rates of skin cancer in the world. Yeah. And this, the, yeah. It's yeah. really paramount that that gets taught better. Yeah. Well, Helena, that, that's a brilliant summary and I think um, sums up the situation beautifully. We'll, we'll wrap things up uh, on this for today and look forward very much to having you at the conference when we'll go through this uh, again and, and in much more detail. So thanks so much for your time today and look forward to seeing you at the conference, if not before. Beautiful. Thanks for the opportunity, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe so you can get updates whenever we post more. And please share it with others. And for more info, please go to helpsert.com.